Ciao amici. Andiamo. Welcome to Cinema Italiano, the podcast dedicated to the Italian experience as told by film. Today, we'll be talking about Alice Rohrwacher's 2022 film Le Pupille, or The Pupils. First, as a couple of news items. In February 2023, the 73rd annual Berlinale Film Festival was held, with several Italian films as part of the lineup. A couple of the noteworthy ones to call out include the world premiere of the documentary The Walls of Bergamo, directed by Stefano Savona, about Bergamo's experience during the COVID-19 pandemic, as well as the thriller Last Night of Amore, directed by Andrea Di Stefano, the documentary Massimo Troisi, Somebody Down There Likes Me, directed by Mario Martone, plus a retrospective screening of Before the Revolution, directed by Bernardo Bertolucci, and a new restoration of Sweet Dreams, a 1981 film by Nani Moretti. At the festival, Pier Francesco Favino, who's an actor that's a pretty major figure in contemporary Italian film, he starred in The Traitor, Padre Nostro, and he's also the lead in Last Night of Amore, which debuted this year at the festival, he made headlines with some comments about Italy's current place within world cinema. At the press event for the film, he claims that Italy is not at the stature where it used to be or where it could be, partially due to international productions that film in Italy but don't tap into Italian talent or actors. He named House of Gucci, of all things, as a specific example where none of the leads in the film were actors actually from Italy. It's somewhat a provocative statement. There could be an element of ego behind it where he and others like him could benefit from this, that if it were mandated to put Italian stars in front of the camera for international productions filmed in Italy, that would drive visibility and interest in those actors, so as a result, there would be more interest in Italian cinema. But it doesn't sound untrue either that global interest in world cinema from any country, not just Italy, would rely greatly on face recognition and bringing visibility to the countries and authentic people from who these stories are being set. Another news item that I'm really stoked about is that the Criterion Collection will be releasing a Blu-ray box set titled Pasolini 101, a 9-disc set containing all his feature films from the 1960s, which includes his first film, Akatone, Mama Roma, one of my favorites, The Gospel According to St. Matthew, plus a handful of shorts and episodes from different omnibus films. I couldn't be more excited for this release. After Pasolini's centenary last year, news of restorations of his early films kept popping up, and once they came onto the Criterion channel, it became clear that Janus Films had acquired much of his early work. Even just from the box set's name, Pasolini 101, it's like it's a college course. This set will be a great intro to understand and get to know the work of this landmark director. On the website, we also have a couple of new written pieces. First is an essay on The Eight Mountains, directed by Felix von Groningen and Charlotte Vandermeerch, which premiered at Cannes last year and went on to win the Grand Prix Award. The Eight Mountains is the story of two childhood friends who meet one summer in the Alps of northern Italy. The two drift apart, then reconnect as adults, and the film explores how their relationships and worldviews grow over time. In particular, I was struck by the dual meaning of the physical space of the mountains, both as a positive symbol of freedom to escape from the city, 
as well as representing a path of isolation separate from the world. The vast spaces out in nature also reflect the openness of the men's relationships lost and memories unfulfilled. I was absolutely knocked out by this movie and can't stop thinking about it. The Eight Mountains is still hitting festivals in North America and should continue to roll out throughout the year. I highly recommend it as a must-see movie. Second is a review of Malarazza, directed by Giovanni Virgilio. It caught my interest since it's set in Catania, in Sicily, and it follows a family on the edge of the mafia and the choices that the mother, who married into this life, and the son, still forging his own path, make in light of their situation. It's an interesting look at specific neighborhoods and some of the issues facing Catania, but the feeling of being trapped with no other options in a city as big and with as many resources as Catania has didn't quite ring true. Malarazza is available now to rent or purchase on Amazon Prime Video. Now, onto our main topic, Le Pupille, directed by Alice Rohrwacher. This short film premiered in 2022 at the Cannes Film Festival, where Rohrwacher's two previous features, The Wonders and Happy as Lazzaro, also debuted, and it continued out to the festival circuit that year before premiering on Disney+, where it's currently available to stream. As a note, in order to watch it in its original Italian language, you have to adjust your Disney Plus settings to Italian. Otherwise, it will default to be dubbed in English or whatever your selected language might be. Alicia Rohrwacher says that her film is about desires, pure and selfish, about freedom and devotion, and about the anarchy that is capable of flowering in the minds of each one of them within the confines of a strict boarding school. Although the obedient girls can't move, their pupils can dance the unrestrained dance of freedom. This short film was inspired by a letter from the author Elsa Morante recounting a story to Goffredo Fofi, an essayist and critic. The story, as told in the letter, is fairly similar to what takes place on screen, though in Rohrwacher's film, the characters are mostly female. It's a girls' school run by nuns, rather than an all-boys school run by a prior, as it's written in the letter. Le Pupile takes place at an all-girls Catholic boarding school in Bologna, set during World War II, starting on Christmas Eve. The girls follow a strict routine overseen by nuns. One day, the girls hear a voice calling to them from outside the school's gates. A well-dressed, middle-aged woman named Rosa asks the girls to pray for her beloved. The girls are then ushered to prepare for that night's pageant, and in a moment that they're left unsupervised, one girl, Serafina, changes the radio from a propaganda news broadcast to the jazz song Bachami, or Kiss Me, and the girls begin dancing and singing along, only to be caught and then punished by the nuns for their wickedness. That night, the school's gates are open, and the girls are arranged in a scene of the nativity, complete with the holy family and angels overhead. Different townspeople come by, with donations and asking for prayers on behalf of loved ones lost or out serving in the war. Rosa, the well-dressed woman, comes back, now bearing an extravagant red cake, called Zuppa Inglese, 
offering it to the girls to pray for her beloved, a count whose heart has gone to another woman that she claims has deceived him, and Rosa is ushered away by Sister Fioralba, the head nun. The next day, Christmas Day, Sister Fioralba brings out the cake, but asks the girls to make a sacrifice by giving up the cake, not revealing that she can actually gift the dessert along to the bishop, who might be able to help with the school's bleak resources. The girls begrudgingly volunteer to give up the cake, except for Serafina, the girl who dared play the jazz song earlier. The head nun asks why she wants the cake for herself, and Serafina admits it's because she is wicked. Fioralba dramatically cuts her her one single piece, only for Serafina to slowly pick at it and then toss a fistful to a stray dog. The nuns reflect on the cake, mostly whole with one slice missing, as proof that they are losing their sheep. Later that day, while Sister Fioralba is alone in the dining room, the school's chimney sweep, Gofredo, comes by, asking to collect for services that he's already completed. Fioralba doesn't have enough to pay him, and offers the rest of the cake to make up for it. Armed with this massive, extravagant cake, Gofredo carefully brings it up to share with his fellow chimney sweeps, but falls coming up the stairs. The men all laugh, but still eat it. Speaking directly to the camera, the girls ask us, so what is the moral? That destiny works in mysterious ways. Early in the film, we see a painting of Santa Lucia with her eyes on a plate, as she is often depicted in art. Santa Lucia was a martyr from Syracuse, Syracuse, in Sicily, and today she is the patron saint of that town. In life, she devoted herself to Christianity, but was promised in marriage to a wealthy pagan man. She dedicated her life to God and begged her mother to distribute her dowry and riches among the poor rather than to the family of her betrothed husband. He, in turn, denounced her to the governor of Syracuse, who sent guards out to persecute her. Among the tortures she was subjected to was having her eyes gouged out, which is why her image in art is often holding a plate bearing her own eyes. A painting of Santa Lucia is hanging in the girl's room, and her brief presence plays no less an impactful part of the prologue. At a visual level, as a saint present in their room, observing them, perhaps judging them, with the specific image of her eyes, edited together with the constricting pupils of the girls, then layering on Santa Lucia's role as a martyr, giving up not only material wealth, but the greatest sacrifice of all, her life, it presents a nearly impossible standard of saintliness that these girls are implicitly expected to live up to. For some of them, the painting of Santa Lucia actually inspires fear with this violent image of her eyes on a platter, and the girls seem to be casting a spell against the cursed malocchio, the evil eye that's hanging up on the wall looking at them. It's sort of a funny foil that these girls need to protect themselves from the curse cast upon them by a saint. The role that the school plays in the community as a religious institution is both humorous and also touching. On Christmas night, the girls and one of the nuns are arranged in a living nativity set, the holy family of Mary, Joseph, and the baby Jesus, and the other girls dressed as angels, elevated up in the air like they're flying. 
At first glance, it's kind of funny, knowing that it's midnight and that these girls are exhausted, worn out, and just got in trouble the afternoon prior. But here they are, performing in this pageant. It's a beautiful scene, one of the best-known historical moments of Christianity, and within the context of this film, it's an image of purity and hope amid the horrors of World War II. This is one of the few times that the gates of the school are open, and the townspeople are welcome to stop by, admire the nativity, as the school accepts donations in exchange for prayers. Women ask for prayers to men lost at war or still fighting, and the orphans repeat the names back, however wearily or begrudgingly, what they're doing does serve and comfort the community. Many of Le Pupile's religious elements roll up more broadly into what is good and what is wicked. To be good is to sacrifice and give up for others or the common welfare, and to be wicked is to be selfish and focus on oneself. When Rosa first comes to the school, asking the girls to pray for her beloved, she does so because their young souls are innocent, and therefore their prayers are more likely to be heard. Just after, the girls complain to Sister Paoletta, the youngest nun, that it's cold in their room, to which she replies that they should be thankful it's cold rather than hot, like hell is. We then see Serafina, one of the youngest girls, nervously eyeing the fireplace and barely manages to scrape out coals, fearful of the heat that she now equates with hell. That same afternoon, Serafina turns the radio to a jazz station, stumbling upon the song Bachami with lyrics about kissing, after which all the girls are punished, and she specifically is told that she is wicked just for knowing the words. The punchline of her story comes at the end when the girls are asked to give up the cake, and she doesn't because, as she admits, she is wicked. Out of sight, the girls all get to share small bites of her single piece of cake, and one of the girls says, we're lucky that Serafina is wicked. The choice whether to be good and unselfish is not only a reflection on Catholic values, but also an encouraged attitude during wartime and a period of scarcity. The reality is that resources and food supplies are strapped, where the girl's big Christmas meal is a modest plate of fettuccine and a pear, and even the school can't afford to pay its staff like the chimney sweep. To go without, for the general welfare and the public good, is a societal expectation, and often reality, during times of war. From a darker lens during this historical context, the command to toe the line and to not deviate is like a form of fascism, albeit on a smaller, less severe scale. It's a divide between order and disorder. The girls are instructed to be of one particular mode of goodness, and individuals like Serafina, who stray from that, are labeled as wicked and made examples of. It's all the more humorous to recollect that the act defining this little girl as wicked is to play jazz music on the radio at Christmas. The divide between the inside and outside of the school is quickly visually conveyed in an early scene of the girls in their room, with the curtains drawn as they stare down the portrait of Santa Lucia. The curtains are opened, bringing in sudden bursts of light, and one by one, we see the girls' pupils suddenly constrict and the whites of their eyes grow bigger. Living on an upper level of the building, behind gates, 
The girls are shielded from the outside world, and their eyes are about to open up from the unusual prayer request of Rosa, essentially asking God to interfere with her infidelity situation, to the decadent, tempting food with the zuppa inglese, and facing the realities of families directly impacted by the war, coming to the school for blessings. In a world of order and discipline, the sudden opening up of their eyes and their imaginations in reaction to the outside world is portrayed as an undeniable biological impulse. To speak to some of the filmmaking techniques, the cinematography here in Le Pupile is more static and traditionally framed than in Rohrbacher's other films, which are often handheld and have almost a floating quality. In an interview, she states that it's meant to evoke filmmaking of the 1940s, shot on film and using the techniques employed by directors of that time. In fact, we see techniques evocative of Charlie Chaplin in silent slapstick comedy. There's a few instances of sped up footage, such as the younger nun running to fetch the bishop's herald and lower frame rates with the girls dancing to the jazz music, capturing a frantic, chaotic energy at odds with the composed, orderly routine that the characters faced most days. The music also adds to the sense of constant order with a plucking rhythm, almost like a metronome, giving it a steady pace and emoting rigidity and deliberate force. To speak a little more to Zuppa Inglese, the extravagant cake Rosa offers to the school, Zuppa Inglese means literally English soup, but it's a dessert layering sponge cake or lady fingers with custard or possibly chocolate, similar in texture to tiramisu. The soup in the name refers to that the, the bread of the cake is dunked in alkermes, a red herb liqueur. The Italian word insupare where we get the word zuppa from, literally means to dunk or soak. Le Pupile is the first Italian nominee for best short film in recent years. From what I could find, it's only the fourth throughout the Academy Awards history, following Christ Among the Primitives in 1953, Exit in 1985, and Wordless from 1996. Unfortunately, I can't find how to access any of these short films, because it'd be interesting to look at them as little time capsules, each set at least a decade apart, to be able to see what thread, if any, connects these four nominees from Italy. Le Pupile feels right at home with Alice Rohrwacher's filmography. The critique of the search in institutions, albeit playful, ring true to her first feature, Corpo Celeste, which also, like Le Pupile, shows the impact and powerful meaning that the church provides, even with all its faults. The fun personalities and occasionally manic energy of the girls are also evocative of the sisters in Le Meraviglie, The Wonders, who, like the students here in Le Pupile, sometimes get themselves into trouble, but are so endearing and fully believable characters. As always, thank you so much for listening. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your choice of podcast platform. You can also follow the show on social media, on Instagram, 
Facebook, and Twitter. Until next time, ciao Michi.